Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, Rush Ticks provided special ticket offers to subscribers for live events including comedy shows, concerts, and theatrical productions in the San Francisco Bay Area. The lockdowns across America in March 2020 changed everything. Jill Bork pivoted Rush Ticks to become a provider solely of live streaming comedy shows centered on allowing fans to interact with their favorite comedians. Other companies have similarly pivoted during the pandemic. Comedians Ben Glebe and Steve Hofstetter tried something different, creating the Nowhere Comedy Club, headquartered in the very specific somewhere of Glebe's home, to replicate the live comedy club experience for fans anywhere and everywhere. As we mark one year of pandemic lockdowns, I spoke with both Bork and Glebe about their separate efforts to keep comedy alive online and where they see the industry going from here. So let's get to it! So, Jill Bork, um, last things first, since, since that's the name of the show, I heard that, that you used to do shows at the Purple Onion. Oh, my God. Yes. That was a t- complete dream part of my life when I was doing shows there. I did a lot of shows there. And it was, it's like, I don't think there's any other venue that's as magical as that place. And it, sadly, it's gone. Yeah. For those of you uh, listening in, whether it's 2021 or later... Uh, the Purple Onion was a uh, was a legendary live venue in San Francisco, and live venues were places where people used to go and congregate in person to watch uh, watch watch all sorts of entertainment. But now that's now that's who knows. Whenever you're listening to this, who knows how we get entertainment? Um, Intravenously, now. Yeah, but so what kind so what kinds of shows were you doing at the Purple Onion? Well, I started out. Uh, so I had this. Before I got into stand-up, I had a an improv show that kind of, for its time, went viral. It was called How We First Met, and it was like a, the show that was just a one-off show. I was in an improv group, and we did this show where we would act out people's stories about how they met. And it was just one of those crazy situations where it just was the right show for the right time. It was kind of pre-Facebook where people were divulging their lives all the time, <laughs> and there was... It just went really crazy and uh, it ended up running for many years. We went all over the world with it. And we had like a residency at the Purple Onion for about seven months. And at the same time, I was getting into stand-up. And so, uh, the, uh, yeah, so I just started, I did that show there like a couple times a week. And then I started getting into stand-up and that's a whole other story. But I ended up just producing a ton of shows at the Purple Onion. I got to know the owner really well, this Italian guy named Mario. And I think I produced somewhere around 350 shows there altogether. It was just a, a magical place. Total death trap. <laughs> it's really scary. Like people could fall down these really steep stairs. But it just had that kind of basement comedy thing where the la- it just was such a like it, I don't know. It has it just has history. Something about that place was just super. Mad. Have you ever been there? Uh, the last time I was in San Francisco, it had already closed. 
So. Oh, boo. Yeah, no, but it was I, really sad when it closed. But but I did get to, you know, anytime I watched uh, Zach Galifianakis, his his very old special, which was filmed at, at the Purple Onion, it, you know, it, it gives you a, a sense of kind of the, the quirky quality that the San Francisco comedy scene has, always, has kind of always had. Yeah, you know, at the Purple Onion specifically, um, you know, the Smothers Brothers did their uh, album there. Phyllis Diller got her start there. She ran there for two years. Like, I'm really jealous of the people that were here in like the 60s and 70s when comedy was just sort of starting. I mean, every city probably has a story. But in, specifically, there was like these three clubs in North Beach, which the Purple Onion, the Hungry Eye, and this other one. I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, they was like the nexus of this sort of beat comedy, you know, stand up or burgeoning sort of scene that was happening. And um, yeah, just a lot of history. And it was a, and it just, it was magical. Just the way it's, it's that low ceiling sort of cave thing where the laughs are super intense and everyone's just in there together. And so it relates to what I'm doing right now because I'm like, as a company, we're really focused on this being a community you know, even though it's online, it's about being, comedy is community. It's a, it's getting together, whether it's virtually or at the Purple Onion. And for this one moment in time, we're a group. We're all doing this together. We're experiencing something and it's, it can be magical. Right. You're the, you're of course the founding owner of Rush Ticks. What was the original iteration of Rush Ticks? So we were a subscription ticketing company uh, based here in San Francisco. And the deal was, um, you could you know, be a member, you pay a monthly fee, and included in your membership were tickets to all kinds of local events. So comedy, theater, um, uh, you know, all kinds of experiences, uh, concerts. And, um, you know, that was kind of our business model. You know, we had like this big user base. We were about to expand into Los Angeles. And then the pandemic hit and we went from like a pretty healthy business to a zero revenue business in a matter of weeks. Um, you know, we couldn't charge people when there was no events to provide. Right. And so um, live streaming was something we had been doing. I'm a very geeky. Um, I, I personally was interested in live streaming. I had played around with Twitch as a company. We had done some marketing things with Facebook Live, Instagram, like we were just playing around with the technology. And so we saw all these partners that we had been working with that were, you know, had no way to perform. And, and so we, we just went out to all of a bunch of uh, folks and just said, Hey, we're going to try this. We're, and the bet was, will people pay for it? Cause at that time, early pandemic, there was a lot of live streaming happening and we started just looking at it, but we we're like, would people pay? Would they buy a ticket for it? And at that point, most people said, no, uh, a lot of artists were like, no, I don't feel comfortable charging. I don't think we should charge. And so we said, well, I don't know how else this could be profitable for anyone involved unless people pay. So we did our first show late March. It was a drag show happy hour featuring legendary drag performer Hecklina. And it made a whopping $78 in tickets and tips. Uh, <laughs> but it really was um, kind of a watershed moment for us because you know, those 15 people or whatever it was, it's, I think it was actually, you could, it was a free ticket and a paid ticket. And it just shows people were willing to pay and they enjoyed it. So we were sort of off to the races from there. And in the beginning, we didn't focus on comedy per se. We were doing all kinds of things that were reflective of what Rush Ticks as a subscription company had been providing. So we did 
we had solo theater, we had concerts, uh, we had comedy, we had uh, circus arts. <laughs> so basically all the partners that we had worked with. And then um, we, but by far comedy lent itself really well to it. And because I personally had just produced a ton of comedy, I think I really understood the dynamic about, about how to produce that uh, and for live streaming. So before I, before I keep going with, with other questions, so how long had Rush Ticks been around as a subscription service before the pandemic? Five years. Five years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so it, we were like, we were like in the ticket business, of, you know, and in the sort of event business before that. But for those first five years, you were solely concentrated in the Bay Area? That's or, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, we had... Um, we had grown our user base pretty substantially and um, we're just about to expand our, our Q2 uh, our, on our roadmap. What we were working on was breaking into a new market and, to, and Los Angeles was our market. So we're just in the midst of going for that. And um, so this was a massive pivot for us. And we just like literally put the platform together in two weeks and did that first that first show, um, and then it was just this kind of skyrocket situation, um, unexpected. We thought we weren't sure how this long was this a stopgap? Was this something that was going to be? Uh, we didn't really expect it to be a long term thing, and, and we didn't really know what the appetite would be for it. Um, but it grew pretty dramatically. Like our first big show sold a thousand tickets. Our next big shows sold almost 3,000. Then we had a 4,000. And we've had, you know, several 5,000 ticket shows. And, and um, you know, the feedback is that people really like it. And I think it's here to stay. Like, the big question we always get is, oh, you know, after the pandemic, is this still, like, viable? And it's like, I think it's just, like, another medium to explore. It has its own, its own sort of nature, similar, just like podcasting has its own thing and, now, like whatever this clubhouse type of thing, there's, you know, it's just a new medium for artists to engage. And it's all real time. You know, that's kind of what's fascinating about it is what happens in the moment. It's really exciting. Did you have to hire new or different kind of staff to work with Rush Ticks when you made that pivot to live streaming? Or did the existing staff you had already working for you already have the capacity to, to make the pivot? So... Infrastructure wise, we, we had to learn how to do some new stuff. So we were already basically a tech company. We were, you know, we we're an e-commerce company and, and like fundamentally, like that's what we're doing. We're selling tickets, but just on a different mechanism. Um, so what we had to learn how to do was how to scale our infrastructure for this high capacity, like where thousands of people are coming on the site at the same time. That's, that's what breaks um, live streaming. Live streaming is... You know, I, I think people think, oh, it's a Zoom call. <laughs> well, we're not doing a Zoom call. It's different than that. It's, um, you know, we're, we have a website and, you know, it's just this high capacity thing where you've got to be able to do chat and live streaming for thousands and thousands at the same time. So we definitely were like on, on a very steep, we're still on it. We're on a very steep learning curve. We augmented our staff. We, we already had a, a good dev team, but we've added to that. Um, we've added Booker for get you know I was booking all the shows up until December. Um, we added um, more to our operations team, um, so we're just like you know I think we we all the infrastructure is the same folks, and also 
the premise of our company is the same. We're all about community building. We're just about like the gathering. That's we 100% believe that being human is gathering together and, and sharing our stories. So that's kind of the premise of where we were before and what we still are. Okay. So my recollection of March, 2020, as far as comedy goes, was other than some initial forays with Instagram live, which I don't know if you can monetize that at all. Mm-mm. But other than that, most of the, the earliest shows that I saw that were comedy based were all fundraisers. Yeah. <laughs> A lot yeah. of comedians getting together for COVID, you know, raise money for COVID-19 relief funds. So like what, what you mentioned, you know, like you had that first big show that to reach a thousand tickets. What was, what was that turning point where, I think it was just, there was, um, I think there was a lot of tentativeness at that point about what was happening. Um, what there, what the, I think all artists were facing the same dilemma, which was, I can't go on the road. Um, what do I, and there's, there's tiers of artists, right? There's the tiers of artists that don't need to, you know, we're going on the road and then they have the, the, financial means that they don't have to be on the road. And then there's the working artists who like, that's their job. They had 50 dates on the calendar that all went away. And so I think that some artists that had the means hung out to see like, well, let's see what happens. I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I'm taking advantage of my audience. And I think that was an assumption that wasn't true. The artists, like their fans wanted to engage with them. They wanted to support them. They wanted to be like a part of something. And so uh, I think in the beginning, it was just, a, it just took a little bit for folks to get on board. And then, and then it, you just started month after month, more and more comedians, especially were like getting on board with it. And, and then it's, you know, it's taken different iterations. There's like, I would say how we fit into the landscape. We're, we're more like producing a show. Like, and that's kind of goes back to my roots with the purple onion. Like, I like, and we're collaborating with the artists, like we're like helping them create their whole environment. We're having this super like high definition, very, you know, like really caring about the audio, all the things that I cared about as a, in real life producer. And then there's some folks that are doing Zoom, doing Zoom shows and they all have their place. Everything's good. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's, this is, this is a medium that will continue to evolve. I, I, I think that, Clubhouse is a really interesting situation because it is also this real time social experience. And I think that's what's interesting and different about live streaming. I really hate it when I see someone do a live, I'm putting air quotes, <laughs> a live stream where they, they taped it ahead of time and they're just sort of playing it for everyone at the same time. That to me is not live streaming. That's not what it's about. Live streaming is that it's risky, it's in the moment, the audience is all there, we're all there together, anything could happen. And that, you know, that's just like a live show. That's the same energy. And that's kind of the palatable thing that we're, we're about. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen that more with stand-ups releasing specials on YouTube where they go, it's going to premiere live. And it was obviously taped before the pandemic. But then the comedian is there in the YouTube chat to interact. So there is that element of it. But, but you know, you did mention like where Rush Ticks fits in and you mentioned Twitch and paid Zoom uh i've also talked to the people at nowhere comedy club um i'm sure there's there's other places on location live i think has done some comedy stuff how would you how would you describe your kind of ethos slash approach to producing a comedy show virtually that that sets fresh ticks apart 
Yeah, it, it to us, it's about like creating the space for the artist to actually be with their fan. Like it's a place for the gathering, not so much just like a show that's streaming. It's really giving agency to the audience, giving them power, whether like they're asking questions in the chat or they're, they're selected to be in the studio audience. And that's the direction that our company is going in general. As a tech company, we feel strongly that this is all about breaking, not, not, not like just like not even fourth wall, just like no wall. Like there's like direct access, the ability to be for the audience to almost co-create. Because like if you're in an actual audience, especially the Proplenian, when you were in the audience of the Proplenian, you were part of the show. That was like you felt it was 50-50. You're watching what was happening on stage. But then there was this kinship you had with your fellow audience members. And right now that is manifesting with Rush Chicks in the chat. So like every show I see people saying this chat was so much fun. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it get, the chat gets crazy. It depends on the dynamic of the show. And every artist has their own kind of fan base that has a different sort of dynamic of what they're about. Um, but that's the thing, like this peer-to-peer exchange that happens, It to me is just so exciting. That's just... You couldn't do that's something you can't do at a real life show. In a real life show, you can't be engaging with someone in Alaska. You know, you just can't be doing that. That's it's not what it's about. But this is a different medium and you can do that. Right. <laughs> right. You'd be you'd be heckling and you'd be kicked exactly. out. <laughs> um, so what have you so what have you learned over the over the course of this year in terms of what makes what makes a virtual show work for the audience? Definitely when the artist is open to engaging and bringing them into their world. What's different about a live stream than a a show in a venue is that in most cases, um, the, the artist is in their home and they are basically inviting that audience into their world. You know, like when a standup goes to like in San Francisco, they go to Cobbs or the punchline you know, we're going to, they're basically coming to the audience's turf. Like, Hey, this is your city. I'm here. I'm, I'm here to hang out with you. But in the live streaming world, it's like, Oh, come into my world. Here is my nerd wall. You know, Brian Post saying, or, um, you know, here, here's where, you know, I create, or this is, you know, I are creating, even creating a set that was reflective of their personality. It's a real invitation to kind of like, just kind of on a different level, which is really is highly personal, and um, and the, the fans feel this sort of next level of of like being a part of, of what they're about. I don't know. And and how and and then on the other side of the of the of the screen, how have you learned to make it work for the comedian? Because obviously, you know, if a comedian is performing out of his or her home, it's a lot different than being on stage with the dark lights and the low ceilings. So yeah. how, how have you learned to make the comedians feel like they're getting the most out of it? Other, yeah. than, other than maybe lots of cash or, <laughs> or stock options. I don't know. Well, definitely GameStop. I don't know what, what, what is <laughs> hot topic. Yeah. Um, so for the comedian, so, cause I did stand up for many years. I, I think that I was very empathetic for them about, and, and in the beginning, I didn't even approach comedians that I didn't think would be a good fit. The first comedian that I really went for was Maria Bamford, because I knew that her style would fit this perfectly. I mean, she already did shows for like one person or in her right. parents' living room. So I knew that she could do it. 
And she was like the first breakout hit. She really nailed it. Um, and I, and then and then what we did was we started to kind of evolve our platform. Like uh, like even though I ha- I'm not gonna say I hate Zoom comedy shows. That's not how I feel about it. <laughs> um, I feel it that Zoom comedy shows what they do have is they have that audience engagement. To me, it's a little too much. It's out of control. Um, but what's great is that you can that comedian can see and hear the the audience. So then what we started doing is we started con- creating a virtual audience. We select 15 to 20 people and their audio could be heard. So the comedian could hear them. And most comedians opt for that now. And we've just been iterating on that to make the sound quality better. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's hard, it's hard to do. And like, we're like really sort of innovating on how to make the audience audio feel like an audience. And there's a lot of tricks to making that happen because, you know, zoom audio in, specifically is horrible for that. So we don't use Zoom anymore. We use a different platform and we mix it. So it's got this panned effect. And then we reverb the, I'm going into too much detail, but basically what we're trying to do for the artist is to get them to where they feel like they're really performing and that they're getting that feedback because comedy is like, laughter is like oxygen. You do need that feedback for, for your jokes to land and for the timing to work and for you to be in sync. And the, the other thing, of course, the comedians need, and that's, you know, you already cited it as one of the reasons to even pivot rush checks in the first place was comedians needed gigs too. So, uh, how do you work out deals with the comics? I mean, it's, it's, is it like a door deal or what is the, yeah, it's like a door deal. We split, we do a split. Um, and I would say that, you know, the, the money can be very good. Mm -hmm. Um, if they are, if they have an engaged fan base, I will tell you, like, because we've worked with so many, I've seen so many deals and I've seen how the ticket sales have panned out. The ones that do the best have an engaged online audience and they weren't necessarily only relying on touring. Like there's just different types of comedians, right? There's types of comedians who are very engaged with their fans online. And there are comedians who just were on the road all the time and doing very intermittent um, social. Um, I would say... To be honest, I think the future for comedians are like is to dig into their online fan base. You know, you don't have to, especially with live streaming, your fans are everywhere and they they want to pay to see you. So you don't have to go get on a plane and go to Australia there. They could just pop right in. And so the investment in um, all of these mediums is so worth it, even though may not seem like it's like going to pay off right away in the long term. It does. So that means podcasting and whatever it fits their style. Some it's TikTok, some it's going to be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, but the ones that have that audience that they're really opening up to like, like, and not just stick. Like mm-hmm. those are the fans. Like they want to have fans. It's kind of evolved. Fans want to have a, like a relationship with, they want to feel like they're part of a tribe and, I mean, this gets really deep and it's kind of crazy, almost religious, but just what I've seen from the ones that do well, it's they have not just a following, they have like, you know, just this fan base that is on their own kind of just part of something. So, okay, I'll go one more step that gets kind of deep. Okay. I think that this type of fandom is almost replacing what religion has to offer in that people want to be part of something. And if it's a comedian or it's an idea or it's a philosophy, that's just like a human thing. And so um, 
these live streams, when the ones that are really successful, you see that the audience is gathering together and they just want to be together with other people that share their passion. So I don't know, I get kind of deep. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when, when, depending on what part of the world or the country you're in right now, when you've been so isolated or so used to, to having only the computer screen, it really does change the dynamic in terms of like what it means to get together with people. So yeah, I'm sure that it does. That even though it's only it's only been a year, has it only been a year? That um, <laughs> it seems like five. <laughs> that we've gone from like you said, not knowing how long this was going to last in the beginning, to now just sort of settling into well, this is just how we're doing it now, and yeah. You know, I might not be able to go to Cobbs or the Punchline, but I can go to Rush Ticks. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then, you know, I also start, to, you know, I start to get deep in the weeds of the like the business aspect of it and go, okay, yeah, but at Cobbs and Punchline, they probably have, have like a two drink minimum, and so they can make a door deal. But then they make all the money if they bring in a comedian who has a lot of like hard partying fans. Right, because then they sell tons mm-hmm. of liquor. Whereas Rush Ticks, you're not doing that. So, well, let me just put it to you this way: I used to my the biggest shows I would produce in San Francisco were at one well 980 seat venue for New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, I did an a, a annual New Year's Eve show called Not Your Normal New Year's Eve. It was alt comedy and music, um, like you know, uh, you know, big, big names, um, and you know. To, to fill a thousand seat venue and all the costs associated with that was a lot. And I would do okay, but um, basically I'm um, like, we're doing shows that are like Masonic theater size and the, and the artists are getting Masonic theater size paychecks. Um, so it, yeah, the math, it's infinitely more scalable than in person. Let's just put it that way. You know, when you can sell 3,000 tickets, <laughs> Um, it's it's a highly it's it's a highly scalable situation and and what and we're looking at deals that are like could be fifty thousand tickets so um, and there there are there have been shows with sixty thousand there have been comedy shows with sixty thousand we haven't done them but that's that's in the cards so you know you just in real life I mean as like I know I like I had that butts and seat syndrome like fill every seat and I still have it um, but I'm doing it at a different scale so. The business model definitely works for everyone. Um, I guess it bounces one. out since you're not paying rent for, uh, for 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 a theater in the in North Beach or. Oh yeah, you're, I'm not paying Fisherman's rent. Or, <laughs> I mean, it's um, it's just like the technology. Like, what is better? Like, can be better about things like that. But I don't have a union scale uh, folks. I don't have box office people. I mean. Every like we have all we have these things in our staff, but it's very scalable. So it's like we can sell a hundred tickets, or we can sell a thousand tickets, and my 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 infrastructure costs may go up a bit, but it's not like an in, an in person event. Like if I was to produce something at the Masonic, I mean that would be a huge huge gamble. That's hard, um, but we're basically doing those shows like once a week, and that's. Good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know I know you said at the beginning that that everybody always asks you what's going to happen after the pandemic recedes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you hope happens? Well, what, I hope what that would you like to see. I I I I, I, 
based on the feedback that we get from because after every show we do a survey and the survey isn't like did you like the show it's basically would you recommend rush ticks to a friend it's like a standard it's called net promoter score and we're getting really high results and a lot of the comments are i would i love this this is like i couldn't go i've uh, things like i've never seen this like a comedian live before. This was my first time. I, I live in another country. I could, you know, I couldn't access this. This is so much more convenient. I don't have the two drink minimum parking babysitter. Um, so all signs point that it's going to keep going. I mean, I think that it's a very similar, it's some sort of cross between podcasting, um, you know, a Netflix special and maybe clubhouse. Uh, it's a different medium. It has its own things. And, and um, artists, I don't think they're going to want to give it up. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's very uh, profitable. It's, you know, one night on your house versus, you know, a week on the road. It's not, and it's not a choice. You can, the in real life is still has its place and that's all going to come back. Um, but it's sort of like, it's a, it's an evolution, right? It's just another way. And it was already here. Like Twitch was already happening. Um, these other live streaming platforms were, were, this was just fuel on the fire. Everyone got used to the Zoom meeting, you know, that ushered into a, a, a way where people were, were comfortable. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have gone this fast. It would probably eventually happen, but not at this rate. Right. It's just the, the real life situations made the technology more accessible and feasible. Mm-hmm. But, but the technology was already here, so. Yeah, yeah, it was. Now it's just, it's there's a lot of um, aspects of real-time li- uh, video that's uh, getting, like, pushed. Like, so there's some cool stuff down the, the pike, and you'll see some developments from us coming in the next three, four months that are, will be really cool um, that are just, it's just, all of this is kind of in the mix right now, and, and um, because getting pushed by this, um, by what's happening in our culture. Well, Jill, I, I thank you for taking some time to, to help explain to me and, and my listeners what's going on with Rush Ticks and with, with the changing comedy landscape. And I look forward to hearing all of these developments you're talking about. So I guess we'll have to check back in with you in a few months. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First. I'm Sean L. McCarthy. And this is my conversation with Ben Glebe, the comedian and former Game Show Network host who co-founded Nowhere Comedy Club. So what's it like trying to become a comedy club owner in the middle of a pandemic while also facing your own health issues? Something I never expected. I never wanted to be a comedy club owner, but it's been one of the most incredible things I've ever done in my life. It has been a lifeline. It's been a lifeline for me and for Steve and for so many comedians and for so many of our audience members. So it's been the most rewarding thing probably I've ever done. We have people telling us nearly every day that we saved their lives with this club, that we bought them, that we, without Nowhere Comedy, they wouldn't have been able to make it through the pandemic. These are the comedians um, or, the, or the fans? The audience mostly. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, around the world. And so it has been unexpectedly incredible. And I'm sure I would have gotten through it without this, but it's made it very, it's made it a very special time in my life instead of one I'm just trying to get through. 
<laughs> we're uh, we're talking now. It's mid February of 2021, so we're 11 months into lockdowns, various states of lockdown. Um, what is the what is the current setup of Nowhere Comedy Club as we're talking now? Current setup meaning what? How many shows are you doing? Uh, where are they being broadcast from? How many people are being reached? I'm coming to you from our broadcast studio, by the way. <laughs> we have done over 300 shows. We have just sold our 50,000th ticket. And we have thousands and thousands of audience members around the globe. Most shows we do have people attending from multiple countries. And many of our audience members return time and again. We have regular audience members. The whole community has sprung up from this club and from SDSC, our sister show that we started during the pandemic. And what were the other parts of that question? <laughs> well, let me, let's, let's go back then. Um, I, I believe you started it in April or were you able to start it in March? When did, when did you actually? We started start? SDSC in April, the social distancing social club, mm-hmm. which was kind of like the experiment precursor to this, which we just had our 200th episode of. And we started this in April. And that was you and Steve Hofstetter and anybody else at the Arca? Nope. Uh, SDSC was me, Steve Hofstetter and Chris Bowers and Rachel Gallagher, mm-hmm. but nowhere comedy club is just me and Steve. How how tough is it was it to set up the infrastructure for Nowhere Comedy Club since it's not you know it's not brick and mortar, but at the same time you have to set up ticketing logistics you have to coordinate with comedians because they're not coming to your physical space they're coming virtually. Right, it was not very hard. Um, you know, right when lockdown started, I I had no prospect for income beyond the occasional. $2.97 residual check. And so I needed to do something immediately. And I just thought about it for a minute. And I thought, I've got to be able to tour. What if I could create a comedy club online? How would you do that? You need, for comedy clubs, you need live laughter. What if we invited the audience onto a video conferencing platform and let them have their cameras and mics on? I bet that would work perfectly. And I called Steve Hostetter because he's the best person I know in the comedy world at executing ideas very well and very quickly. And I knew he's a man of action and it would be a good way to get this up and running very soon. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. And he was thinking along similar lines and had done kind of similar things in his past. And so we instantly clicked on it and Two days later, we had our first social distancing social club go live. And about three weeks later, we had Nowhere Comedy Club open its doors. We hired staff. We trained staff. We figured out the protocols. We came up with a name and a logo and a vibe for it and pre-show music and all the things that make it feel like a warm communal experience and make it feel like a night out. We tried to create as close to the experience of a night out as possible. And it was just very organic. It was the most organic thing that I've ever done. It just flowed. And Steve texted a lot of his comedian friends. I texted a lot of my comedian friends and some of the biggest ones I could get to. And a lot 
didn't want to do it and still didn't still don't want to do it and <laughs> a good handful said yes and we were live and started selling lots of tickets Alonzo Bowden and Brad Williams and Judah Friedlander and Jamie Kennedy and all these great people just started saying yes and Ida Rodriguez and then Nikki Glazer said she would be a special guest on on one of my shows and had a great time and came back two other times to do it and we all of a sudden were having these incredible names and Judd Apatow was hopping into our audience and Bill Burr tweeted it for me even though he didn't want to do his own show. <laughs> Well, he's doing his own show with us this Saturday, just 11 months later or, or 10 months later. His is a charity gig, so I guess, you know, right. that, that, that can miss him. And now we do actually have people coming to a physical studio a little bit, too. Steve and I then, you know, months in, built this physical broadcast studio space um, because some comics are still not very tech-savvy, and even those that are, some don't want to do a show from their kitchen or their living room and deal with the tech of that. And so we built a beautiful studio space and invested quite a lot of money in making it gorgeous. And it's in my home, in the back of my house. But we built this COVID-compliant, virus-killing air scrubber, following all the protocols of, of COVID-compliance studio. And we have incredible people coming here to do shows. And we did the Telethon for America from here and the Flip Wisconsin Blue event that... Some, including the head of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, have credited with perhaps helping flip Wisconsin since it won by a razor-thin margin and therefore helping flip the country. So we've been able to do some really interesting things out of a thing that just came out of desperation, really. That's right. Uh, you reminded me that before the, before the pandemic hit, you were running for president yourself. That is correct. Yes, I was. And... That was part of what led to my desperation because I already made very little money the entire year before this. Mm -hmm. I took a year off, basically. I did some gigs, but I made a fraction of what I normally make and donated to my own campaign to, to get it going in the beginning. And so I needed desperately to come back to a normal year and make money again. And then the world shut down, and I was like – I was against the wall in a major way and had to figure something out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, always remaining politically active as well, I was able to do those two events with Nowhere and kind of merge these two realities and have an impact on the election as well. Um, it was pretty cool. Does your, does your politics, your political, you know, views and ideals, does that come into play when you, when you think about how the comedy industry is reacting to the pandemic? You know, some comedy clubs have rushed to reopen you know, with or without proper protocols, depending on how, what you think is proper. Yeah, it, it has no, I mean, Steve and I both are very progressive and we, um, we are trying very much to follow all protocols. We make sure that we, we're very happy that we can give an option to comedians to make money and to tour the world really without breaking COVID protocols. And we, you know, don't love how many clubs reopened so quickly and probably helped spread this thing further and is keeping us in lockdown longer than necessary. Um, Steve and I both have not done a show live since the pandemic began. As far as being on the road, I've done a couple of distance shows in LA um, or drive-in shows as well. But 
um, yeah, we just want to make sure that we are being good citizens and trying to do our part to help people through this while also not killing people. It seems like a pretty <laughs> decent way to go about things. <laughs> you would think. I mean, it's a uh, knock on wood. It's it's unexpectedly um, good news that I guess we haven't heard of a super spreader event coming from a comedy show yet. True, but it's also probably just because no one's contact tracing people at comedy clubs. Right. But you'd have to imagine it's happened. I mean, I know if the clubs in Florida are open, as is everything in Florida, and they're packing people in just like normal. And plenty and, of comedians have gotten sick while touring. Yes, and <laughs> laughing is certainly an aerosol-spreading occurrence. Right. Not even, um, when not even Dave Chappelle or Brian Regan are safe. Yep. I didn't know. I didn't know Brian Regan got it. I know Chappelle did. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the circumstances around how Regan caught it, but I know he caught it a couple months ago. Yeah, so. it's 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 so wild. And you know what's also very interesting too about this is we thought we were giving comedians a way to make money, and we were giving comedy goers a way to be entertained. When when live entertainment shut down globally and people needed to be entertained the most, but what we didn't realize was this club has also filled a need for people completely unrelated to the pandemic, and that's why we know this club will keep going far beyond. Is that there's a lot of demographics that have never been able to go see live comedy for a variety of reasons that now can, whether it's disabled people people with social anxiety, people who can't afford a full night out with babysitters and parking and tutoring minimums, people that live in remote areas that comedians do not tour to. They can all now see their favorite comedians in the comfort of their own home, assuming their home is comfortable, as we say. Right. What have you, you know, you, you just talked now and you talked earlier about, about how this has been kind of a godsend for fans and audiences during the pandemic. What have you learned over the last 11 months in terms of how to make the virtual comedy experience better for the comedians? Because it's still, you know, like you said, you built a studio in your home, but it's still not the same as like being on stage at a club with the, the immediacy of the crowd right in front of you. Sure. So it's definitely not the same and it's not as good, but the immediacy really is the same. And we've, I th that's what we pride ourselves at Nowhere on is making the experience as close to an in-person performance as possible. And that's why I think we do this better than any of our competitors is that we are comedians and we know exactly what a comedian needs to have a show feel good and feel right and be happy with their performance and their crowd. And so we've replicated that as best as possible. So many shows, they do them passively without the audience laughing. Well, that's literally not stand-up comedy. That's a monologue. Or that's an Instagram live broadcast that everybody gives away for free. Right. And it is not a satisfying experience for the audience. Some of our competitors allow maybe 15 people to be in a separate audience. And then you can buy a ticket to watch those people enjoy a show live. <laughs> and to me, that is not stand-up comedy really either. Yeah, it is. That's like watching a special kind of, like a low-quality special on a streamer. 
But going to a comedy club, we're the only ones that I know of that are truly replicating that experience or to a theater or to an arena if it's a huge act. We are replicating that experience where everybody can be seen and heard if they want. Their mic and camera can be on. And so it is that same immediacy as seeing a show at a comedy club. You're there, they perform, you laugh, you can even heckle, and you can get thrown out if you do. Um, but we're able to mute people much faster than you can mute a human being at a live comedy club. You got to walk over to them, you got to whisper to them, you got to beg, and here you just click a button. And so we have a great trained staff that is able to manage live crowds such that when Mike Birbiglia does what's coming up on, I think, over his 20th live, 24th live show with us of a, about a thousand people each, we don't have issues with sound. And that's pretty incredible. There's an occasional disruptive sound that lasts five seconds, just like a comedy clubs. Mm -hmm. So it really is that. And just like you and I are talking right now with the immediacy of back and forth, and you can cut me off if you want and vice versa, it's that immediate. There's barely a delay. And so I don't adjust my timing. We have many shows that are complete crowd work shows. Todd Berry has done, I think, 10 virtual crowd work tour shows with us. I do a weekly show called Glebe Off the Top Crowd Work and Improvised Madness. That's all crowd work, but it's spruced up with some effects that you would never be able to do at a comedy club. Like all of a sudden you can become the Joker. Or tell people just to wear a mask. Just wear a fucking mask. What's so hard? Or you can even shock people into their worst nightmare come alive, okay? You can easily shock yeah, these, people. Yeah, these filters are not... <laughs> <laughs> these filters are not something you would get at a regular comedy club. It's insane. You can become Kermit the Frog live in real time, Sean McCurdy, and uh, entertain people in a way they never thought possible. <laughs> How I mean, it? amazing quality graphics. Yeah. And so, so you know, it's – and I turn into these characters during my show, and I have special guests join me, like Jamie Kennedy and Adam Ray and Nikki Glaser. And soon Tiffany Haddish tells me she wants to join for one. So you get to give people experiences they could never see while at the same time also giving them something very familiar, a full live performance before they go to sleep. I might have to use the video now. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, real mess. I know one of the one of the other shows you do. I don't know if it's weekly or how often you do it, but I know you also do improv shows with uh, Greg Proops, right? I do. I do a monthly show with Greg. How does so? How does an improv show work? When are you guys in the same room or no? No, we're not. So how does that? How do you adapt the improv to the virtual space? It's been amazing. And also Steve does a month, a weekly show called Ask Us Everything with Daniel Muggleton, an Australian comedian, and they host it together, and he's in Australia. They're hosting a show across the planet every week. And so Greg Proops and I, you know, he's an improv legend. We just adjust. There's really not as many limitations as you think. So we play improv games, Whose Line Is It Anyway style, some of the classic games. Mm -hmm. and some are one-person scenes, and we tag in and tag out, but some are two-person scenes. And improv is already largely about using your imagination to bring the scenes to life anyway, but we literally do two-person scenes 
as detailed as he's like, here, Ben, have a drink. And he goes like this, and then I grab it and pull it back, and it's as though we're in the same room. And you don't feel a difference. And we've been doing this now for eight months together, done eight or nine of these. And it's called Greg and Glebe, It's a G Thing. And we do full-on improv shows, and people can't get enough. They love them. And on New Year's Eve, we sold 300 tickets, and we're joined by special guests Ryan Stiles and Dave Foley. And the four of us did improv together. <laughs> and it was a dream come true for me to work with these people, first of all. But mm. beyond that, it was flawless. We were able to improvise and joke. And that's why, to me, it is so insane that every touring comedian that keeps posting, I miss the stage so much. God, I can't wait till I can do stand-up again. For them to not do virtual shows, especially the way we do it at Nowhere Comedy, where we come as close as possible to real life, where you're performing in front of your entire audience and you see and hear them laugh in real time, how is that that different? Sure, it's better if you can hear everybody of your thousand-person crowd laughing crisply in real time, and Zoom limits the amount of audio that comes through, but you still see them all laughing and you hear a great number of them laughing at any one time. But they're opting instead easily and happily to do drive-in shows where people honk at you instead of laughter. You literally don't hear laughter and they honk. You don't even see the people. You just see metal vehicles spread out and they honk. The worst sound for humans that drives you nuts when you hear it normally. This is what is the replacement for laughter because sadly – Comics are supposed to be the advanced thinkers of our time, and m many of them are very slow to adapt, are Luddites when it comes to technology, and just think, oh, I must travel to do comedy. Let me travel to a town and stand on stage, even though you're not in person with them at all, and they're honking at you like they're angry. <laughs> Whereas, how is that a better replacement than performing in front of people who you see and hear their laughter? It's obviously much closer that way to real life and some just don't get it and we have security protocols in place so we've never had one issue of anybody uploading or stealing a joke or a show from it and putting it online at all so that's not a concern either and comics just don't adapt but the ones that are are and we're getting bigger and bigger people we've had john cleese we had jim gaffigan pop into a scholar brothers podcast and john ham and and uh uh, Michael Ian Black and all these great people that are doing shows with us slowly but surely, and we just hope to convince more and more people. Gilbert Gottfried's doing one soon. That's going to be cool. Um, it's there is truly no reason for a comedian to not try this, and it, maybe it's because they did a Zoom show at the beginning of the pandemic, one that hadn't figured it out. Mm -hmm. I you know I think all of our competitors that are doing this are all doing a great service. They're all bringing entertainment to people at a time when they need it, but. I really believe we do it more uniquely and much more true to life than anyone. And so I just encourage them to try it. There's a bit I've been developing for a while that's not quite funny yet, but the joke is about how we all complain about the future. We're now in the future and where's our flying cars and where's our teleportation we were all promised. But we have teleportation. We're doing it right now. We can have a thousand people in different spots around the globe all in one room together. And it only is missing three of your, uh, of your five senses. And it's the least important three. So what? So, 
so you can't smell, taste, or touch the place. Those are literally the three that you use the least when you travel. It's mostly looking and hearing, and you got that, and being heard, and being seen. You got exactly that. So I can be walking down a street in China right now on someone's iPad and my head's almost real life size and I can see every single thing and I can be seen. So I can't use the restroom there or smell the street. That's all you miss. So we can teleport everybody into the house of any of their favorite comedians and they can be with them for an evening. So it's been surprisingly really amazing and I don't have to leave my house. My girlfriend was so sad at how much I had to travel as a road-traveling headliner and wished I could travel less. I don't think she intentionally conjured up this pandemic because that would be pretty messed up of her. Yeah. But she's happy, and I'm pretty happy too. Well, she made sure you got it, so. <laughs> That's true. She conjured up the pandemic and then made sure you had it in the first yeah, wave. She breathed on me a lot in January. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better. Um Thanks, bud. What is, what is, for you as a comedian, what is the most important aspect to be able to duplicate virtually? You say duplicate? Wait, to be able to duplicate what? <laughs> Go ahead. Please. Yes. Speak uh, freely, Sean. Speak to me, Sean McCarthy. So, yeah. So, what is the most important aspect of the real, the in-person? What is the most important aspect of the in-person stand-up comedy experience for you to be able to achieve virtually just hearing laughter in, in real time and 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 that's the only thing that that again isn't quite as good as live of course because the energy of a full room laughing feels stronger but we come really close the most important is being able to deliver a joke and hear the audience's response and see them respond and so whether you do it from your home laptop and we produce it remotely for you and you have them on your laptop screen or you come to our studio here in L.A. and you see the audience surrounding you on 30-foot wide screen surrounding your field of vision, you get to see your crowd in real time laughing. That's all you need for stand-up comedy. And, I mean, it's mind-boggling to to me how none of the late night shows even get this. It's so wild how small they think. Every late night show went into lockdown and thought, I guess we can do zero audience and have to have very awkward jokes that land like a thud on the ground. <laughs> even SNL, they did a few at-home shows. Right. And on the first one, Weekend Update did this. They invited Shay and... And Joss invited some of their friends to be on Zoom yeah. and to laugh, and it felt live and real, and the jokes landed. And the next week, they're like, eh, we got rid of that. Let's just do jokes to avoid. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's so weird. Where you can actually have people come in and hear the laughter, and then the energy is the same. Maybe you should, It's maybe all about they, the energy you get from the crowd. Maybe, they should, have, maybe they should have – maybe Saturday Night Live should have the honking cars. <laughs> That's an idea. Um you could have honky cars, and it could end awkwardly with kind of a bad joke at the end and run a little bit too long. So, you know, I'm in New York. You're in, you're in California. Um, but from what I gather, the studio that you built does have the ability for people to stand and look at a wall of screens. Come on, fine. No, Where are you? There watching you, you work, it's like 
It's like uh, what I vaguely remember from the old days when I would be in radio, radio station DJ booths and to mm-hmm. see like how they could play with all the controls. And Yeah, this is very much, it, it's become very much like the original days of television. I just also, we, we've created a way with nowhere to incubate pilots. I just shot a pilot two days ago on Valentine's Day called Undercover Lover, where we use face filters to hide bachelor and bachelorette's appearance so that people vying for dates with them don't know what they look like until they make their choice. And it was incredible. We had over a hundred people attend. We made three matches that I think have a potential to really fall in love, like great matches. Huh. And we were able to make this pilot without spending any of our personal money. Cause people bought tickets to it. we literally have a way to incubate TV pilots. It's nuts. So, all right, let me show you. This is what our studio looks like that we built. This is Sarah Silverman on the stage performing at the Turn Wisconsin Blue event. Oh, okay. So it's 30 feet wide of screens curving around you. And you see, I mean, how is that very different than performing on a stage in front of those people? Right. It's certainly not like if I were to do a show from my couch, like I'm talking to you now. Right. We have a stage. We have the audience in front of you. We have a mic. And you see them, they see you, you hear their laughter. It's incredible. We have a, a piano even. I had on my Halloween show, um, Jeffrey Baldinger come here and scare people through the window and then come in stage like a zombie and then sit down on the piano and we start doing musical numbers together. Is that a table or is that a giant ottoman? That is two giant ottomans <laughs> together that usually go up into seating if the comedian brings one person with them they can watch from there okay um but also it helps for first for sound baffling as well oh very nice and uh it's pretty awesome and we just had this thing built but like you say even when um even when you're performing from your home because the vast majority of our shows are not in the studio the vast majority you are performing from your home but we produce it really well and we make the little changes so we don't let our comics sit down on their couch that makes it feel like a normal zoom call right we have sound and picture check it's not just sound check it's sound and picture check and we give them best practices in advance and we get them to stand up we make sure their lighting is good we make sure they raise their laptop to eye level we make sure their backdrop looks presentational we encourage them to stand in front of a curtain or at least a blank wall or to use our virtual background that we created for them i can pull up right now so that they um so that they have all the little details that give the impression that you're performing in a real club and we wouldn't let them do this with just bad lighting. We actually click the green screen thing and then pull mm-hmm. a green screen behind them, get them to put a green screen up and you feel like you're at a club, hold the microphone, have an external mic in your hand, all these little details that make all the difference in making it feel like a real club. We tell the comics, don't be on stage when you're introduced. When our host introduces you, come on like this. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Like you're walking onto a stage and you're done. Good night, everybody. And walk off. We produce the hell out of this thing so you actually feel like you're seeing a live performance and not seeing a guy sitting there being like, hey, ready for my jokes? It's those little details that make what we do, I think, again, as close as possible to real life. So then do I take it you also pay the comedians in drink tickets? 
That's correct. Yeah, we pay them a drink tickets, and we promise them that if they keep performing here for free, that eventually they will get real stage time. <laughs> our comedian, I mean, our, frankly, though, our comedian's able to make. It's incredible. Money. They get full door deals mm-hmm. like any club on the road. Obviously, we don't have food and beverage, so we have right. to take some percentage of it to make any money ourselves. But they get full door deals, and they can literally make as much money as they would on the road, sometimes more, because our capacity is bigger than most clubs. We have a thousand person capacity. They make a major lion's share percentage of the ticket sales. We don't take very much. We, again, are very comic friendly. We want to make sure that comics are happy and want to come back and want to tell their friends. The Sklar Brothers now, who do their podcast Dumb People Town with us monthly and are about to do their second stand-up headlining with us, are recruiting other comedians for us because they evangelize for how wonderful the experience is. We want the comics always to know that we have their back. So we take a very humble percentage and they make the lion's share. So just do the math yourself. But if you sell a thousand tickets for $15 tickets or $20 tickets, and you can do a VIP meet and greet afterwards for 30 to $50, which is creates much more intimate experiences than you could ever have at a club. You can make many, many thousands of dollars in one show. We have some comics that are grossing twenty or thirty thousand dollars in one show. We have some mm-hmm. comics that are, that'll do four or five shows over the course of a weekend and make over a hundred thousand dollars. That's the same amount of money, if not way more, than you would make on the road. And that's without even selling merch. That's without even selling merch. That's correct. So one of the reasons that uh, I'm talking to you and not you and Steve Hofstetter is. Steve's busy in Pittsburgh trying to build one of those old fangled comedy clubs, but in a church that's going to be like a comedy compound. Yes. He's not really building a club. Well, it's it's in an existing building. Yes. It's an existing building. used to be a church and he's basically building what he calls a comedy Hogwarts. He's creating the, um, the uh, Pittsburgh, What's it the the Steel City Arts Foundation, uh-huh. and basically he's just building a performance venue, an art venue where he will invite comedians who are on the, who are have potential and are on the way up to come and live for months at a time. Work there will be editing bays, there will be um, performance spaces, there'll be a podcast studio, there'll be equipment they can use for free, and. They'll put on shows and be able to perform there and be mentored by Steve, who really is one of the best – not only is he hilarious, but one of the best business minds in comedy. So he, I still get tips from him all the time about how to take my brand and my comedy to, to the next level. And they'll get to have that experience and also have their rent paid for for several months at a time. Um, and so that's interesting because – He's here. He was here in L.A. and we built this place together and then he's bouncing out of town. So but again, we realized how well things can work remotely. He realized he does not need to be in L.A. anymore, just like so many comics are leaving L.A. Uh, and moving to Austin and Nashville. And Steve's moving to Pittsburgh for some reason. I don't quite get the location, but he got a great deal on a property. I'll, I'll um, have to I'll have to talk to him about that. But yes. it gets to the point, like, what do you what do you see as the future then for Nowhere Comedy Club for live stand-up comedy, you know, as we slowly reemerge in 2021 into 2022, what do you, what do you hope to see? 
Well, I certainly hope it all comes back. And I hope that few, if any, clubs have to close. I hope that none do. But I know some will have to probably. But um, I hope we come back, come back very strong. Maybe stronger than ever in some way because people will be so hungry for it. But I just hope that virtual comedy continues as well and they can coexist alongside each other. You know, they don't need to be at odds. Just like there's room for competitors in any market, there's room for both of these forms of comedy to exist. This didn't exist before. You know, nowhere was the world's first virtual comedy club. And we plan to be the last also. Um, I hope that we get to have both. I do my weekly show, Glebe Off the Top, and I plan to keep it every week. It might stay on Saturdays and be a little bit earlier, be like at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern, and I'll perform them from my hotel room before I go on the stage to do two Saturday night shows on the road, or I'll move it to Wednesdays. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, this is an option for comedians when they're working on a TV show or a movie, and they can't go on the road for two or three months. They can still do shows on Saturday night from their house or from their trailer on set, and they don't have to be stand-up shows, Q&As, live podcasts in conversation with shows, crowd work shows, and there's no reason you can't do both. And we can also then expand to broadcasting people's shows from comedy clubs, from physical clubs, and expand their, their ticket capacity to the globe. Something we're working on is being able to geo-target who we sell tickets to. So a comedy club, we wouldn't allow people in that city to buy tickets to it. But right. everybody else in the world could buy tickets to it. So imagine if you could see your favorite comic performing to a crowd of three or 600 people in Tampa, Florida, but then also watch it from anywhere in the world and make more money for the club and for the comic. Right. That sounds like those sports blackouts. Right? Yeah, exactly right. So yeah. that's the one technology we're, we're, we're making headway with trying to figure out, but we're not quite there yet. Okay. But that's what our wish is, that we can keep doing all of it because it just gives another way for comics to make a living in a business that never gives you any job security and something that you can count on. And because unlike physical clubs, we can have three shows going on at once. And sometimes we've done four and five shows within the same day. We can give a lot of stage time to people. You know, it's been the craziest thing that has ever happened really in my career in that this business, the really shitty part of it is that there's no job security. You can be on top one minute and don't know where your next gig is coming from. You know, I was, as I mean, I know, Sean, you know, well, my career trajectory, you've been covering me, you know, on and off throughout the years, all the random gigs I've gotten. You were there at the Oscar road trip I did in New York. True. And you certainly know I was on Chelsea lately for a bunch of years. And then on idiot test, you did a story on that. I was the star of of the game show network for years. I was the face of the network. I was the the Christmas commercials. You know, it was holidays <laughs> filled with glebe. And but then they stopped making those new episodes in 2018 and they're still on the air constantly. I don't see a penny from that. It went on Netflix. And I don't see a penny from that. You know, it's a sad story for Chappelle who's already a multimillionaire that they were airing it without giving residuals. They're also airing my show without giving me residuals and I'm not a multimillionaire. And so people think you're doing so great in this business when oftentimes you still are struggling to figure out where your money's going to come from. And, you know, then I did a thing in 2018. I created the Telethon for America, this incredible star-studded event 
that I hosted with Olivia Munn. 95 of the biggest celebrities on earth participated in it. Amy Schumer and Chelsea Handler and Charlize Theron and Natalie Portman and all these incredible people. And a week to, with the goal of helping create historic voter turnout. And the next day we had historic voter turnout for our midterms. And the next week my agents dropped me. From doing a groundbreaking thing, I brought together Hollywood to support the planet. I got dropped because that makes sense, right? And that's that's so canceled. That's canceled. That yeah, without even doing anything offensive, <laughs> just like extreme cancel culture. The next wave is canceling people who do good stuff. But the very and then the same thing happened during pandemic. You know, I created this club. And for the first time in my life, I'm not dependent on club owners booking me. I'm not dependent on Hollywood giving me shows or appearances on TV to be able to pay my bills. I am my own boss, and I can hire all of my comedian friends to have work when they want them, when they, when they want it. And so I then did the Telethon for America 2020 during lockdown. That I hosted with Rosario Dawson and brought 70 of the biggest celebrities together to help create the biggest voter turnout in American history and had celebrities like Josh Gad and Ed Helms and Alicia Keys and Eva Longoria and Kerry Washington, all part of the show. And the following week, my stand-up agent dropped me. <laughs> they really don't like America or something. I don't know what it is, or, or at least telethons to save the country. But for the first time in my career, I didn't care. I was called saying, I'm so sorry, but you weren't bringing in enough money for us and we have to make cuts. It's tough times for everybody. I understand that. And they said, we have to let you go. We can't keep representing you right now as a stand-up client. I'm so sorry. And I literally said, cool, no worries. And on the same call, they talked to me about, but we would love to talk to you about doing corporate gigs with nowhere for our big stand-up clients. And I said, let's talk. Because I don't need them anymore. Of course, I still want the legitimate business, and I am sure I will get plenty more work when business picks back up again in in the traditional entertainment industry, but I don't need it, and it's the most freeing thing in the world. Well, Ben Glebe, congratulations on making something very special out of what could be nothing. And thank uh, you. and thank you for for bringing nowhere everywhere, including into my home. Thank you, Sean. It's so much my pleasure. Thank you for being curious to ask about it because the biggest challenge is getting more of the industry and more of the comedians to embrace this and realize how great it can be. And so, thank you for giving us a chance to amplify that message. My pleasure. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.